Welcome everyone to our special edition podcast for the month of July. I am Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. As many of you may know, over the past few years now, for the months of June and July, we've done a podcast to accompany our supplements from the American Hip and Knee Society member meetings. So over the next 20 minutes or so, we'll be discussing the July supplement of the BJJ that includes 21 papers for the American Hip Society members meeting in 2020. For those of you who have not listened in before, we'll give you a brief overview of the society and who the members are, as well as discussing about their collaboration with the journal over the past three years, and along with how we hope this is benefiting you as our listeners and readers. We also aim to give you a behind-the-scenes insight into how the studies within the supplement have been reviewed and chosen, as well as some brief discussion on a few select prize papers. So with that in mind, firstly, I'd have the pleasure of being joined again by our Editor-in-Chief here at the BJJ, Professor Farah Stad. Welcome, Prof. It's great to have you back with us. Andrew, thanks, and thanks again for doing this. Very grateful. Prof and I are delighted to be joined this year by the guest editor for the HIP supplement this year. So that's Dr. John Cloisey, who is the Distinguished Professor of Orthopaedic Surgery and Chief of Adult Reconstructive Surgery at Washington University Orthopaedics in St. Louis. Welcome, Dr. Cloisey. It's great to have to join us today. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Look forward to this podcast. Great. So if we could just start with you, Dr. Cloisey, you know, just for our listeners who particularly have not listened in before, could you give us a brief overview of the HIP Society, how it sort of came about and, and what role it plays? Sure. Uh, before that, Andrew, just want to thank you for organizing and uh, moderating the podcast. And then Ferris, want to thank you for an outstanding job editing the, um, the supplement issue. So the North American Hip Society was started in 1968 by Frank Stinchfield, who had a vision at that time as total hip arthroplasty was coming on the scene. He felt the need for a society to really focus on hip disease. So Dr. Stinchfield, in collaboration with 20 elite surgeons from North America, came up with the concept and began the, the North American Hip Society. Since that time, the society has grown and is primarily composed of North American surgeons. It's an invitation-only society. We also have a number of um, members who are adjunct members, honorary members, or emeritus members. So it's a very rich society of physicians, surgeons, and scientists focused on hip disease. And, and Dr. Lucy, is it, would it fair to say, I mean, uh, we've, I've remembered chatting with Prof before, it really is, uh, the, the, you know, the, in some of the highlight meeting many many way for hip surgeons in terms of the level of and the quality of evidence that is, is being presented there. Yeah, certainly in North America, the, the best uh, work in North America is presented at the meetings. We have an open meeting associated with the Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, and then we also have a closed meeting, which is represented in this supplement issue. Uh, the society, uh, the aims of the society are really very simple and focused, which I think is one of the strengths, and that is to improve the knowledge regarding hip disease, improve the clinical care of our patients, and in doing so, improving the lives of these patients. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Prof, if I just come to you next, you know, uh, d- could you sort of give us insights into the collaboration with the Hip Society and how this you've sort of this has developed over the the past past three years? Yeah, it's been a, a rich and you know v- very uh, happy relationship for the last three years in that we've worked well together to try and distill the contents of what is always a, an outstanding meeting with some outstanding minds and great thoughts and good vision and good research into uh, those abstracts that come up in the proceedings every year that really encompass the entire meeting and are a sort of uh, legacy of that meeting in its entirety. And then in these supplements, the papers uh, that really come through the peer review process and stand through that test. So they're developed ideas that have withstood peer review and are ready to be shared 
with the rest of the world. And so we, you know, we've seen a a, a good uh, theme through the last three years of subjects that are very topical in hip surgery uh, that the hip surgeons and the hip society have produced for us. We've also had the um, the huge advantage uh, of publishing the prize papers, which are an important contribution of the hip society yearly, and those are competed for worldwide. They they are also peer reviewed, but they go through a different selection process with the hip society board selecting the prizes, and then go through a BJJ review process. So those papers have really been through the mill to be selected. So just before we move on, Prof, just to give the listeners a bit more detail, in terms of the, the peer review progress for, process for all the papers, it's, it's quite rigorous, isn't it, in terms of what it goes through for before they end up in, in the supplement? Uh, ab- absolutely. So every HIP Society paper that is submitted by the deadline gets put through peer review by both uh, HIP Society reviewers and uh, BJJ non-HIP Society reviewers. So it's a fairly rigorous process. It then comes back through, and uh, Dr. Closey has been very humble. He has worked incredibly hard with us to get this uh, supplement in place. They all then go back through discussion uh, with Dr. Closey and myself to make sure that uh, they are revised appropriately and that they fit the standard that both the HIP Society and the journal would wish for in papers that are published and are going to be cited in future. Yeah, absolutely. You can very much see that from the, the quality of the papers that are in the in the supplement. So, Dr. Kulosi, if, if I could come back to you, that sort of leads us on nicely in terms of before we sort of look at the prize papers, you, you sort of describe it nicely in the editorial you've done with Prof. But, you know, what, what do you feel have been the really core or topical themes from the papers that you've you've seen this year? Sure. The, the supplement issue really covers quite a spectrum of papers and investigations, but there are current themes that are very timely and important. So one major theme is perioperative care of patients. So we had several papers investigating different aspects of perioperative care, including outpatient surgery, introduction of new technologies like smartphone and telemedicine technologies, opioid use and prescription. So those were the main, one of the main themes Other themes were the young patient. You know, the young patient continues to be a challenge for us. As we know, they have a long life expectancy. And we had papers on surface replacement arthroplasty, highly cross-linked polyethylene bearings, and dual mobility in the young patient. So those papers are, you know, promising and addressing a very important subgroup of patients undergoing total joint replacement. The anterior approach is becoming more popular, and we're sorting out the the indications for that approach. So we had several papers on the anterior approach relative to hip stability, uh, cementation of the femoral component through the anterior approach, and then bilateral anterior approach procedures. And then finally, hip instability and pelvic mobility is a very hot topic. We know dislocation is one of our major challenges, and we've become known over the last several years that Pelvic, st- pelvic stiffness has a lot to do with the risk for dislocation. So we had several papers looking at issues related to dislocation, pelvic mobility, and the association between those factors. Yeah, that's a great overview, Dr. Closey. I think, like you say, that there's a real breadth of, of, of topics covered there. And it's interesting seeing how 
some of those topics to, uh, you know are seen in the knee supplement as well and through other p- forms of, of research whether it be trauma things like the opioid use and the use of smartphone technology in terms of particularly i suppose within the recent pandemic in terms of how we follow our patients up and and things like that and that sort of leads us nicely into, i suppose to the the three prize or award papers which i wanted us to discuss which was for those who don't know there's the john charlie and the otto Ofrank awards which are for innovative clinical or, or basic science sort of research and whose findings felt to represent important advances in the understanding and treatment of disorders of the hip and then there's the the frank stinchfield award which specifically recognizes a resident or fellow in training who submits an outstanding contribution so the first paper i wanted to touch upon was the one which won the john charlie award and reported on a protocol-based strategy when using hemiarthroplasty or total hip replacement for femoral neck fractures and how this this sort of this protocol that they've they've developed has influenced their mortality rates their length of stay and complication that was from the team at the university of california yeah, this is a great article, and it really, this is, in many of our minds, viewed as the ultimate award from the Hip Society. So uh, Roberts and his colleagues at UCSF introduced a interdisciplinary protocol to take care of hip fracture patients. As we all know, these, these fracture patients are at high risk for complication and even death. They, t- they tend to be elderly and commonly have multiple comorbidities. So they introduced a standardized protocol involving multiple disciplines, including orthopedics, geriatrics, ER medicine, cardiology, anesthesiology, and really demonstrated remarkable differences when compared to a historical control at their institution and demonstrated decreased time to surgery, decreased length of stay, increased discharge to home, which we all know is an advantage for these patients, decreased complications, and a decreased one-year mortality. So really remarkable findings with this interdisciplinary program and something that I think a lot of centers are going to try to follow in the future. It really kind of outlines a roadmap to improve outcomes and decrease costs for these patients. No, I agree. The, the, the findings are really quite stark, aren't they, Dr. Garcia? And it was interesting sort of how the, their rates of total hip replacement have, have been going up as well for these for these patients, you know, their overall rate. Have you found that in your institution and generally throughout the States? Is it becoming more more common for patients with hip fractures, even I suppose in light of the health study that recently came out from the from Mobandari's group? Is, is that what you're seeing as well? We really are. I, I think even in the hands of the, the trauma teams and in collaboration with adult recon surgeons, we're definitely seeing an increase in total hip arthroplasty for patients with femoral neck fractures, especially if they're a little bit on the younger side. So I think that's a strong trend in North America. I'm not sure how that's playing out in Europe, but certainly uh, the way we're, we're tending in North America. No, I agree. And Prof, I just came to you before we move on to this paper. It's, it's, it's a great study, isn't it? And it's sort of I suppose mimics in some ways, and not completely, but what we've seen with sort of things like the best practice tariff here in in in, in the UK, and we you know we had the paper recently from the White Group that showed <clears> similar <throat> things in terms of the the benefits having protocols like this can have for the this, these this patient group. Absolutely, that's the comment I was going to make. Is that you know the National Hip Fracture Database, the best practice tariff, have really made a difference to fractured neck ephemera in the UK. They've led to the similar direction of travel to the one that John has observed in this study, and it, this just highlights the importance of you know interdisciplinary working, but also international communication. And I think what I hope the, our journal and these supplements are doing is leading to communication across the world about these important issues. So what we have, this complements very nicely the work that we've recently published and all the evidence that is accumulating that best practice tariff has improved care, improved mortality rates, you know, decreased morbidity in this very important group of patients. 
Absolutely, no, absolutely. So, if we could move on, Doctor Clifford, I came back to you. We'll, we're going to talk about the second prize paper next, which was from the team at HSS in New York, and that was a prospective large multi-center study that evaluated just under four thousand consecutive patients undergoing a total hip replacement and looked at the use of the the hip spine classification, how it could guide the use of dual mobility articulations in patients with spinal pelvic pathology. Sure. This is another outstanding contribution, very timely, as many hip surgeons are working through these concepts of spinal deformity, pelvic stiffness, and the risk of dislocation. So Dr. Vigdorchek and his colleagues at HSS, as you mentioned, did a prospective multi-center study outlining first a hip spine classification system that they've previously published. In this article, they use that system and they really validate it at three different centers with three different surgeons, which is uh, very important. The system is based on two major concepts, and that is alignment of the spine and mobility of the pelvis. And with those two major categories, they have four subcategories in which they they look at the risk of total hip arthroplasty dislocation. Most importantly, when they look at the high-risk group, they had 166 patients who were treated with dual mobility articulations. And the dislocation rate was 0.8% at five years. So compared to our historical literature where uh, rates are reported up to 10%, that's really a remarkable uh, change in the treatment of these high-risk patients. So uh, really introduction of the system, validation or establishing reliability, and then establishing the effect on treatment can be very positive with the introduction of dual mobility bearing. So great, great, impactful paper from this group from HSS. Absolutely. Prof, I came to you, it really is, isn't it, in terms of giving you, you know, these sort of preoperative evaluations and how they can help you in terms of in terms of the outcome for the patient. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is a lovely paper. We have had a number of groups worldwide entering this domain, this sort of whole spinopelvic alignment and the themes around it. And we desperately need a common language to discuss among spine and hip surgeons, and also to be able to go from this is a problem towards fleshing out who needs what solution and not just jumping to dual mobility. So I think John Vodorczyk's work and others is, is really going to push us forward. So this will prove to be an important and highly cited, highly referenced paper that people should look to for the right way to define these problems. Absolutely. Yeah, like you say, it gives us that common language to, to, to move forward with these. So if we come to, Dr. Clifford, I come back to you in the final prize paper, which won the Frank Stinchfield Award, and that was from the group in Ottawa. And the aim of their study was to develop an in vivo model of periprosthetic joint infection in cemented hip hemiarthroplasty and, and to monitor infection and biobilm formation in real time using their model. And this is a nice, interesting study, isn't it? This is a great study, a little different type of study. This is a basic science study. As we all know, PJI is a devastating problem for our patients, and we need uh, methods to better study the pathophysiology of that disease and our potential treatments. So they, they turned to develop an in vivo small animal model, of which we really don't have good models for investigation. So very impressive. They developed this in vivo rat model, looking at a cemented hemiarthroplasty and infection of that hemiarthroplasty, and then following the progression of disease and potentially the treatment of disease in the future with real-time monitoring of the infection and the development of the biofilm. So they're, they're addressing a major clinical problem. It's a small animal model. Hopefully that will better help us better understand the pathophysiology of, of PJI, as well as investigating potential treatments as we move forward. 
Absolutely. And Prof, it's great to see such a, a nice basic science paper, isn't it, in this area? In, in, indeed. I mean, this is one of the areas that we need to focus on in orthopedics. You know, it, it's an area that's moved very little compared to what it, we need it to over the last few decades. And it's an area full of opinion. And so actually getting some basic science at the heart of it and then working from there, that gives me hope for the next few years that we will actually make some, some real progress in this area. So really delighted to see some basic science work coming out of the hip, uh, the hip society. Absolutely. Dr. Cotillo, just a sort of final word from you in terms of, you know, what, where do you see in terms of the, the big questions moving forward in terms of research in the, the, you know, given the papers that we've seen this year, what do you think our next steps moving forward are? A great question. You know, as you know, we have some great work here that we've summarized. I think the, the hip spine issues are extremely important and to make that generalizable in, in terms of the, the general orthopedic surgeon and the hip surgeon and to implement that worldwide, those concepts I think is extremely important. As Ferris mentioned, PJI is a devastating problem worldwide. And again, we need to continue to make progress in that realm. You know, following young hip patients, we need to follow young patients over long periods of time. So five and 10 year outcome studies are fine, but we need to really focus more on 20 to 30 year outcome studies over the next decade. And then finally, one thing we haven't talked much about is preservation surgery of the hip. I think there's tremendous potential to refine those techniques in terms of patient selection, optimizing our surgical procedures to really push forward surgical prevention of hip osteoarthritis in the future. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. That was a, that was a really nice overview of, of a really exciting supplement, I think. And, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much. Uh, great collaboration. Really enjoyed putting the supplement issue together and talking to you guys today. Th thank you. And thanks so much, Prof, for joining us. It's great to see you back. Andrew, thank you. And it's been wonderful working with John on this and with the Hip Society. And thank you very much for putting this together. Thank you so much to you both uh, for joining us for our podcast and congratulations on an excellent supplement. Uh, I know it'll be of real interest to our readership and to our listeners. We do hope you've enjoyed joining us and feel free to post or tweet about anything we have discussed here today. Uh, and thanks again for listening. Take care, everyone.